Today's reading is Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This can be found on page 1025 in the Church Bibles. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants to the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once... When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshippers were outside praying. When an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah saw him, He was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many from the, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realised he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among my people. 
Thank you very much indeed, Andrew, for reading for us. Uh, do keep your Bibles open there um, uh, in front of you. Um, you might like to have one at home as well. Uh, we'll be looking at that together in the next few minutes. Now, I wonder how high your expectations are this Christmas. Uh, many years ago, my eldest brother's expectations at Christmas were cruelly dashed. Uh, there was a present under the tree that he had been looking at for weeks. You know, the way kids do, they pick them up, they kind of assess the weights, give it a little shake, wondering what it is um, inside. And it uh, had a label on it said to Mike, love from mummy and daddy. Mummy and daddy always give the best presents. And so he was full of excitement about this present. And when he came to open it on Christmas Day, he was tearing off the paper. It was a box. He lifted off the lid, another box inside. So he, he took off the lid, another box and as he reached inside, you could see the joy just drain from his face as he lifted out a small, hard, red ball. And my parents, who were quietly amused in the background by what turned out to be a little joke of theirs, suddenly realized it was all going wrong when he burst into tears. And they both rushed over to him to try and console this little boy, presumably feeling quite bad that they were already threatening to ruin his Christmas day. And they ushered him through to the next room. They opened the door. It was dark. They flicked on the light. And there in the middle of the room was a snooker table. (laughs) And suddenly he could see that that little red ball was in fact part of something truly amazing. It is sometimes only when we see the big picture that we realize that something that at once looked unimpressive is in fact part of something amazing. So I wonder how high your expectations are this Christmas. It may be that they're a bit bit of a low this year, perhaps because of COVID and all the restrictions. Uh, Maybe it's just that, you know, you've lived long enough now that that giddy childish excitement has gone, and every year it just feels like just another Christmas. Well, this morning, as we start this series in chapters one and two of Luke's Gospel, we're looking at probably very familiar Christmas stories. And we'll see in these chapters a series of divine promises and fulfillments. Promises and fulfillments. And in every promise fulfilled, there's a cause for rising expectations. Expectations in more promises being fulfilled. Expectations for those in the narratives that we're going to look at, but also for those of us here today, 2,000 years later. But like with that red ball, it's only as we see these stories in the big picture of God's plan that we'll realise they are part of something truly amazing that God was doing in those days. But perhaps you doubt that. Whether you're a Christian or not, perhaps you doubt the idea that the stories of Christmas could really have any relevance to you and me today. And if that's the case, the opening of Luke's gospel is perfect for you because it is written to a sceptic and initially about a sceptic as well. And it addresses head-on the apparent unbelievability of the events that were reported to have occurred around the first arrival of Jesus. In these opening verses of his gospel, Luke directly explains why he's writing, and it's to persuade a man called Theophilus of what he's heard about Jesus. Look down with me at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account 
of the things that had been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus had clearly heard much about Jesus. And we don't know how exactly he and Luke knew each other, but it would seem that Luke, a believer in Jesus, is trying to give Theophilus a grounded confidence in the message about Jesus, that it isn't myths or made-up stories. Did you notice in verse 1, he's, a, he's addressing events from his own day. He says the things that have been fulfilled among us, among us. When we read Luke's gospel, we're reading about history. But for Luke, when he wrote it, it was current affairs. And that gives credibility to his research that it would otherwise lack because it's able to be based on eyewitness testimony, as he points out in verse 2. And so Luke has, verse 3, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, compiling an orderly account for Theophilus and to give him the confidence that he apparently lacks. And this is why Luke is so helpful today, because even though it's thousands of years old, it addresses a very contemporary concern of many people who doubt the truthfulness of what they've heard about Jesus. Sure, I've heard it in school assemblies, maybe Sunday school, but true? Really? Luke says, look, these claims are not made up. They are based on real events and in reports that can be researched and found to be reliable. I've done that research. It's here. Read my gospel. He wants to persuade sceptical people. It's why he, and perhaps you'll notice this as we go through, it's why he peppers his gospel with very specific references to times and people and to places. He uses those things like an academic today would use footnotes in a research document to give credibility to their research. And it's why the first story of Luke's gospel is of a sceptical man who at first found God's words unbelievable. Here he is in verse 5. Take a look. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was married to Elizabeth, and they were both good kind of people. Verse 6 says both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But there was this one deep sadness in their lives. Verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And any hope of that changing had long since passed because it says they were both very old. To be unable to have children is one of the most painful things that a couple can go through. But perhaps it's even worse in a culture where that was a cause of public disgrace. People suspected it might be God's way of punishing wrongdoing. And Luke is very keen that we don't come to that conclusion. It's why he stresses both of them were righteous in the sight of God. But for them, it just hadn't happened. And now the window of opportunity for that had long since passed. That's the backstory for this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's the backdrop for the story as it really begins in verse 8, 
with what began looking like a normal day at work for Zechariah the priest. Look at verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now here's a picture um, on the screen of the temple where Zechariah worked. And if we can have the next slide, um, you'll see um, up there circled, um, that is um, a place called um, the Most Holy Place, that building. And it was such a sacred place. It was the place where God dwelt in a special way. So sacred that only priests could go in and only one at a time and only for special purposes. And by apparent luck of the draw, this was Zechariah's turn. So in he goes, all on his own, clutching the incense, closing the door behind him. And verse 10 says, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. And then, out of nowhere, it happened, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Of course he was. We probably all had that experience where you've thought that you're alone and suddenly there's someone there and you jump out of your skin. I'm the worst for that. But for Zechariah, this wasn't just anyone. This was an angel, an angel. And Zechariah knows now that this is no longer a normal day at the office. In the Bible, angels only appear at really significant moments. And that's what this is about to prove to be. Seeing Zechariah's response, the angel very kindly tries to calm him down. Verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. His prayer? What prayer? Well, of course, the prayer. The prayer that he had been praying countless times through the years when lying awake in bed at night, when holding his tearful wife, the prayer for a child. We don't know whether it was still a regular prayer for Zechariah or whether it's one that he had given up praying long before. But now the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. What must have been going through Zechariah's head in that moment? Delight? Wonder? Doubt? Certainly. But I wouldn't be surprised if also a little confusion. I mean, no doubt this was great news for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but really enough to justify a visit from an angel? Well, the answer to that query becomes clear as the angel explains this child will be significant, not just to his mum and dad, but to many others as well. Look again at verse 14. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. All signs, by the way, that he'll be set apart for a special purpose. And here it is in verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. This child, not yet conceived, is already surrounded by great expectations. He will be great, the angel said. But did you notice great because he will serve the cause of one who is even 
greater still. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if all that sounds a little bit cryptic, to our ears, it would have made a lot more sense to Zechariah because Zechariah was a priest and he knew his Bible. And back then, all that had been written of the Bible was the Old Testament, the first half of what we have today. And the final book of the Old Testament uh, had been written 400 years before. It was called Malachi. And the final words of the final book in his Bible were these. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. That was the cliffhanger, the great promise at the end of Zechariah's Bible. God promising to send an Elijah-like figure to prepare the way for the Lord God himself. And now there's an angel standing there in front of Zechariah, telling him that he's going to have a son and that his son will be this long-awaited Elijah figure. One would think it would have been a lot to take in. And that's why Zechariah, apparently struggling to process what's happening to him, blurted out the question in verse 18. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. Zechariah, doubting that this could ever happen, asks for more evidence, please, for the things he's just been told. Now, often we read the Bible in very kind of serious tones, don't we? We're um, very straight-faced. It's the Bible. We should take it seriously. And, of course, we should take it seriously. Don't get me wrong about that. But there are bits in the Bible that are very clearly laugh-out-loud moments. And this next bit is one of those moments. Picture the scene. Zechariah is alone in the temple. There's an angel in front of him who has just come and appeared to him with news from God saying about what is going to happen. An angel! And Zechariah goes, yeah, but how can I be sure? How can I be sure? And you can imagine if there had been others there with him that they might have been saying to each other, did he really just, did he, did he really just ask that? And this is how the angel replied. I love this. Um, I am Gabriel. Heard of me? I'm not, I'm not even just an angel, actually. I'm, I'm an archangel. I'm kind of a big deal. No? Nothing? That isn't quite what the angel said. That's my paraphrase. This is what the angel said. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. How can you be sure? Well, one might have thought that would be enough, Zechariah. But look, as well as this being rather funny, there is a serious point as well. Zechariah was a priest. At this very moment, he was representing the people before God. It says that he was a righteous man. But when he received this promise from God, his instinct was to doubt that it could possibly be true. It's like the mask slipped for a moment and revealed an unbelieving, unexpectant heart. If you're anything like me, you probably feel a pang of sympathy for Zechariah. After all, the promise did seem to be rather unbelievable. 
But Luke is trying to show Theophilus and he's trying to show us that maybe we too have the same problem Zechariah had. If we have low expectations of God's promises, it's because at some level we doubt either his trustworthiness or his power. It shows we've shrunk him down to be a a tiny pocket God of whom we expect very little. And so in a clear but limited rebuke, the angel said in verse 20, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. The angel's point, God's promises are always fulfilled. So our expectations should be exactly as great as God's promises. We'd all agree, wouldn't we, that it would be madness to not believe that the sun will rise tomorrow when it has every single day of your life so far. And the point here is that every time we see God's promises followed by fulfillment, promise, fulfillment, promise for fulfillment, it should build our confidence that all God's promises will be fulfilled as surely as night is followed by day. That's why Luke shows us what happened next. The angel had said Zechariah would be unable to speak, and verse 22, sure enough, when he came out, he could not speak. A promise fulfilled. The angel had said Elizabeth would have a son, and verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home, and sure enough, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Another promise fulfilled. And every promise fulfilled gives cause for rising expectations. Surely in the following months, as Zechariah silently watched his wife's tummy growing, he must have taken more and more seriously what it was that the angel said that day in the temple about his son. You can imagine him turning it over in his mind. What was it the angel said again? Well, look at verse 17. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In the 400 years since God had last spoken to his people, they had splintered off into all sorts of different groups and sects, each with their particular ideas about what God was doing and what they should believe. Even in the same families, parents believing one thing, kids believing another. But the angel says this child, John, will, verse 17, turn the hearts of the parents to their children. He'll be like one of those tourist guides you see walking along with an umbrella held up in the air so that others know to congregate and to follow. He'll reunite all those splintered groups under the one truth. And as that happens, he'll show people how to have a restored relationship, not just horizontally, person to person, but vertically with God as well, which is why Gabriel said in verse 17 that he had turned the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The ministry of John would bring people back together under the truth and under God. That promise that Zechariah could only silently contemplate through his wife's pregnancy we see beginning to be fulfilled in chapter three. Another promise 
fulfilled. And every promise fulfilled gives cause for rising expectations. So how does this raise our expectations today? We might think that those rising expectations were surely fulfilled in the birth of Jesus at the first Christmas. So why would we still be expectant today? Here's why. John wasn't preparing people for the birth of Jesus. It's obvious when you think about it, John was still a toddler when Jesus was born, if that. No, he was preparing people for the mission of Jesus, which was to reconcile people to God through the offer of forgiveness. He became known as John the Baptist because he was, chapter 3, verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There in the River Jordan, he was plunging people under the water as a sign of their sins being washed away, made clean, a people prepared for their coming Lord. And this season of Advent is all about anticipating the appearance of Jesus. The word Advent means appearance or arrival. But the Bible is very clear that as well as having appeared once in the past, Jesus will appear again in the future, his second advent. 2,000 years later, that's something we're still waiting for. But why would we believe for a moment that God will keep that promise after centuries of silence? That's just what Zechariah might have asked. And the answer's the same. God's promises are always fulfilled. As Gabriel said, they will come true at their appointed time, as surely as night is followed by day. Luke wants us to be clear that the Christmas stories aren't fairy tales. They are fulfillments of promises patiently remembered through centuries of silence. And that every promise fulfilled gives cause for rising expectations. That presented Theophilus with a challenge. It presents us with a challenge as well today. Will we respond to God's word like Zechariah? Or will we believe God's word? Expect what is promised. And so be a people who are prepared for the Lord Perhaps in the coming days, I can ask this of you. As you prepare for Christmas, whether it's wrapping presents or decorating your tree, if you haven't done that yet, or um, even if it's just putting your out-of-office email reply on, uh, whatever it is you do to prepare for Christmas, might you just catch yourself in that moment and ask yourself this question, am I prepared for the Lord? Have you turned back into him in repentance for the forgiveness of of your sins? Will we be expectant this Christmas, not just of the first arrival of Jesus, but of his second as well? And will we be prepared for him in the deepest, truest sense? May God make us a people with expectations exactly as great as God's great promises for us. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are one who we can trust, that your promises are always fulfilled, that we see that in the events of that first Christmas, and we can trust that still today. We thank you that Jesus did come, and for these weeks in which we remember that, but we pray that in this time as well, you would help us to remember he will come again. And we pray that through the gospel that John preached, that Jesus preached, that is contained in Luke's gospel, there for us to read, we might come to have our sins forgiven and washed away to bow before our King Jesus and be prepared for the day when he will come again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.